Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. And if you would, please open up to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In the Red Bible, it is page 1012. James chapter 2. This past week, I had uh, the privilege of officiating a funeral for D. Buchler. Uh, it, was, uh, it was just such a sacred moment to honor a woman who loved Jesus and was passing on a heritage of faith to her children and to her grandchildren. It was just a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful time. Um, also, to, just to see her husband who loves Jesus, uh, as he said, uh, see you later to his wife of 72 years. Just a, a wonderful, sacred, sacred uh, opportunity. But as I was driving away from the funeral, it occurred to me that uh, funerals, funerals are, are good for my soul. Because funerals are really, uh, you know, there's something about death that makes us realize what is most important in life. Um, something about death that makes us realize maybe where we are not spending our time or energies uh, where we should and redirecting us and focusing on those things which are which are most important. Um, and so, so, so there's something about death that helps us uh, uh, evaluate life, but there's also something about death that makes us think about eternity, and rightfully so, it should. It makes us, uh, it brings us face to face with the reality that all of us will die and there is eternity coming. And so I, I wanna give you a scenario, I want you to think about this. Imagine that you are at a funeral, okay? And after the funeral is over, a friend comes up to you and says to you, where do you think that person is? And you say, well, what do you mean? And they say, you know, do, do, you, think, do you think that person in the casket, do you think, do you think they're with, in heaven? Or do you think, you know, they're in the other place, right? And, and the appropriate response in this time might be, hey, let's, let's, Let's grab coffee. Let's talk about this later. Or, or an appropriate response might be, you know, only the Lord knows, but, but do you know where you are going to be when you die? That's probably a more appropriate response, but, but just entertain this with me for a little bit. And so uh, you say, well, why, why are you asking? And, and they say, well, you know, um, they, they claim to be a Christian. Uh, they were baptized. Uh, they have this decision card that they signed, and, but, but their life didn't always match up. And you say, well, what do you mean? And they say, well, you know, like, they didn't really connect with the church much. It just kind of went when it was convenient, when there wasn't something better going on. Um, you know, they, they lived in a, in a way that was, was just kind of shady at times. Uh, they, they, they uh, you know, they weren't really generous with their, their time or, or their money, but, but they claimed to be a Christian. Uh, and they believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so I'm just wondering, like, do you think that they are a Christian? 
In today's passage, James gives us a litmus test, a way of evaluating, not if someone else is a Christian, but if you are a Christian. And so we look here to James chapter two, uh, not to evaluate other people, but to evaluate our own faith, to, to determine, do we have saving faith in Jesus Christ? And so look with me, if you would, in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. This is God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord God, as we dig into this very um, weighty passage, Lord, I pray that you will give us the grace to take blinders off our own eyes, to evaluate our own heart and our own faith in a way that is true and consistent, that we would not doubt things that are true of us, but that we would also not accept things that are true of us that are not true of us. And so God, pray you would give us the grace to see clearly our own hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Everyone you meet is a person of faith. You are a person of faith, even if you are not a Christian. If you follow Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or some other higher power, or even if you, you follow no God at all, you are a person of faith because you believe in something. And so the question today is not if you have faith, but what kind of faith do you have? 
In verse 14, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he says this, can that faith, meaning there's different faiths, can that faith save him? In this passage, James will be laying out two types of faith. And everyone has one faith or the other faith. And in verse 14, James says there is a faith that saves and there is a faith that does not save. And so throughout this passage, he, he links other descriptions of this saving faith and non-saving faith. You'll see it there in your bulletin. It's also up here on the screen. But non-saving faith, he also describes as dead faith in verse 17, useless faith in verse 20, and inactive faith in verse 22. Saving faith, he describes as a living faith, a useful faith, and an active faith. Sometimes he doesn't say that exactly, but by implication, he says it. And so again, the question for you today is not if you are a person of faith, but do you have saving faith? This is not a secondary question. You must not treat this question lightly because it has eternal implications. And so I encourage you to consider this question with all seriousness and zeal. Now James starts by describing to us a non-saving faith, which we're just going to call dead faith because that's what he calls it. And what he tells us, first and foremost, is that dead faith is an inactive faith. Look at verse 14 again. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he goes on to describe the first characteristic of dead faith is that dead faith gives advice but not sacrifice. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so the scenario that James is laying out here is that there is a brother or sister in Christ in the congregation. Maybe they are unemployed, maybe they are underemployed, or maybe there are other reasons, but they are financially strapped. They do not have the money to eat. They do not have the money to clothe themselves properly or their family. And in that moment that you find out, you respond by blessing them. In a way that seems warm at first, but in reality is not. You see here, you say, go in peace. The, the, the important word there is go. <laughs> You're saying, depart from me. But then covering it over with this blessing of in peace. And then you offer them a piece of advice. You say, okay, you are hungry and you are cold. Well, hey, go warm up somewhere and go get some food to eat. Now, of course, what is the problem with that is they don't have a place to go to be warm. They don't have the clothes to be warm. They don't, they don't have the food to eat. And so it's great advice, but they don't have the means to carry it out. And so for many in our congregation, the neediness does not look like a need for clothing or for food, although sometimes it does. But sometimes the neediness is relational. Maybe you find out that someone is lonely. Someone feels friendless or isolated. 
And so you say to them, go in peace. And remember, you have to be a friend to make a friend. <laughs> you give them advice, but you don't pursue them to be your friend or to connect them with other friends. Or maybe the neediness is emotional. Maybe someone is just really struggling with what's going on at work or at home or in their, their private life and they're, they're, they're sharing their heart with you. And you say, you know what? You should really meet with a pastor or talk to a counselor about this. Go in peace. Now, that may not be bad advice, but just because you encourage them to connect with a pastor or a counselor doesn't mean that you don't pursue them as well to love them and care for them. Maybe the neediness is physical. Maybe there's a single mom or a single dad that is just exhausted and burnt out and you listen to him and you say, you know what, go in peace and by the way, don't work so hard. Take a break, pamper yourself a little bit. But you don't offer to watch their children. You see how this works? Where we grant this blessing upon them as we send them away and we give them advice but offer to do nothing for them. And so that is what James is saying as an indication of dead faith is that it gives advice, but it doesn't take action. It doesn't take sacrificial love. And so that's why in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this is very, very important. In these verses, James is not telling us how to have saving faith. Rather, he is describing dead faith so that we can diagnose it if we have it. And the way we diagnose a dead faith is if the faith that we have does not produce a transformed life of sacrifice for others. If it doesn't produce the fruit of mercy. Let me give you this illustration. Let's say you move into a new house. And in the backyard, there is an apple tree. And you think, oh, good, we're going to have apples next summer. Well, you get to next summer, and there are no leaves, and there are no apples. And so you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe this tree is malnourished. Uh, maybe, maybe it needs to be pruned. And so you prune the tree, and you give fertilizer to the tree, and you water the tree to make sure it's well taken care of. But then you get to the next summer, and there is no leaves, and there are no apples. There's no fruits. And so you wait another summer, and again, you get to the next summer, the third summer, and there are no there's no fruit and there are no leaves. What do you conclude at that point in time? You conclude that the tree is dead because it is bearing no fruit. Now you can take an apple and tape it to the tree, but that fruit cannot make the tree come alive. And this is the important part because the fruit does not give life to the tree, but the fruit reveals if the tree is alive. In the same way, if your faith bears no fruit of sacrificial love towards other, if your faith does not transform your heart to mercy and generosity, if your faith is merely secluded to religious duties on a Sunday morning, the only reasonable conclusion is that you have a dead faith, not a living and active faith. And so dead faith gives advice, but does not bear the fruit of sacrifice and compassion and generosity towards brothers and sisters in Christ. The second 
The second test that he gives here, the second indication he gives of dead faith is that dead faith has orthodoxy, but not orthopraxy. Now, those are big words. I will define those for you. First off, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is generally accepted doctrine. So for Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus is an orthodox belief. It is widely held by Christians that Jesus died and rose again. That is orthodoxy. And so in verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. This is an orthodox belief of the Jews. Uh, it's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Shema, which was very important for them. It was kind of like their John 3, 16. But, but Deuteronomy 6, 4 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was speaking against polytheism, saying we don't have many gods, we have one God. There is only one true and living God. He is the Lord God. And James is saying, you believe that God is one. You believe there's only one true God. Good, you should believe that. But then he goes on. Verse 19, again, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Did you know that demons were trained in the seminary of heaven? Throughout the gospel of Mark, the only ones who know the identity of Jesus throughout the whole gospel until after the crucifixion, the only ones who know the identity of Jesus are the demons. They constantly say, you are the son of God. Demons are better theologians than you. Demons are better theologians than your pastor. <laughs> Demons are better theologians than the greatest scholars in this world. Demons have precise orthodox theology, so much so that when they consider the greatness and awesomeness and the holiness of God, it says it makes the demons shudder. But this orthodox faith for the demons and also as we see for Pharisees and Sadducees in the New Testament is a dead faith, not a saving faith, and not an active faith, at least not in the ways that are consistent with God's mercy. You see, a strong orthodox theology is a great gift from God, but it only qualifies us to be demons. You know, in Green Bay, there is a wide acceptance of orthodox beliefs. Almost everyone in Green Bay would say that they believe in Jesus as the Christ, that he died, that he rose again. Almost everyone has heard of and believes in the Trinity. But what James is telling us here is that orthodoxy without orthopraxy is dead faith. And so what is orthopraxy? Well, if orthodoxy is right doctrine, orthopraxy is right practice. Not that we ever practice our faith perfectly. We don't always do that. But if the doctrine of God's grace and mercy and compassion towards you in Christ does not move you to show grace and mercy and compassion towards others, James says, beware, your faith is dead. He continues in verse 20, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, it's empty, it's vain. And so here's what James is saying. He's saying that there is a faith in God that is a dead and powerless faith. It is the faith of demons. It is a faith that is useless to your brothers and sisters in the church. It is a faith that does not transform your heart and your life. It is a faith that is useless to save you. During the Reformations, there was many reformers. I think it started with, with Martin Luther 
who put this passage in this way. It might have been John Calvin, but he says this. I think we have it up here on the screen. He would say, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Did you get that? He says, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Let me expand that for you. We are saved by faith alone and not by good works, but saving faith is never alone because it is always produces good works. We are saved by faith alone and not by good works, but saving faith is never alone because it always produces good works. And so indications of dead faith is that you give advice, but not joyful self-sacrifice to others. Another indication is that this saving faith has given you, sorry, another indication of dead faith is that you may have orthodoxy, you may have some right beliefs, but it does not transform your life to orthopraxy, to living out your faith consistent with your beliefs. Saving faith is a transforming faith that transforms our hearts And as it transforms our hearts, it transforms our actions. And so James starts by exposing dead faith. But now he goes on to show, to tell stories of living faith, stories that his original audience would have been familiar with, stories from the Old Testament. And first he shows that saving faith is an active faith for patriarchs. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes on, he says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, this is going to take some explaining. So back in Genesis chapter 12, we were introduced to this man named Abraham. Abraham lived in Ur. He was a worshiper of pagan gods. And the Lord God, by his grace, spoke to Abraham. And he said to Abraham to come and to follow the Lord to a land that he will give to him and to his descendants. And so in a great act of faith, Abraham obeys. He, he packs up his family and he heads out to a land that he doesn't know where he's going to, but he's going because he's following what the Lord has told him to do. God also promises Abraham that his barren wife will have a child and that through this child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is a tremendous promise because when Abraham receives this promise, his wife, Sarah, is 65 years old. She is barren and she is postmenopausal. It is impossible for her to have a child. And yet in Genesis 15, it says that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see in this, and this gets important, but, but so what we see is that Abraham is counted righteous because he believed the promise of God. God then waits 25 years. Sarah is now 90 years old. Abraham is 100 years old. And they have their first child, Isaac. And as you can imagine, they cherish this child, Isaac, which they had been waiting for, for, for generations. I mean, Uh, If anyone would be a helicopter parent, it would be these parents, right? They had been waiting so long for this child, for this promised child, this miracle baby. Finally, he was born. And then God decides to test Abraham's faith. And he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then the next verse is amazing. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning 
saddled his donkey. And then for three days they traveled so that he could offer his son as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord, his only son, his beloved son. And so in obedience over those three days, he did not deter. I'm sure there's a lot of things going through his mind, but he did not turn back. In obedience by, by faith, he continued on this journey, trusting the promise of God that even if he did offer his son as a sacrifice, somehow God would raise him from the dead because God promised that through this son, all of the nations would be blessed. And so we continue in the story and we see Abraham grabbing his dagger in faith to offer his son as a sacrifice. And then we read that an angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then this is important. He says, for now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so here's the question. Did Abraham's obedience produce in him a saving faith? Or was it a saving faith in God that led him to obedience? I think the obvious answer is the second. The only reason he would obey immediately and for those three days it's because he had faith and his faith took the form of actions. And so that's why in verse 21 it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now this is a very, I guess, confusing verse in the Bible. Many people are uncomfortable with this because it seems to contrast the rest of what scripture says. Uh, the apostle Paul, particularly in Romans 3, says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. He also says, for we hold that one is justified, that is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul even uses Abraham as an illustration. He said Abraham was justified, uh, it, for if Abraham was justified by works, which he's saying he wasn't, he has something to boast about. And so it appears that James and, and, and uh, Paul are preaching two different gospels. It appears that Paul is saying you are saved by faith and not by works. And it appears as if James is saying you are saved by works and not by faith alone. But remember that, that it was Paul and James that were gathered together in the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. That council that declared that the Gentiles were saved not by what they do, but by faith alone. And so what's going on here in this passage is, is that it is telling us that we are justified before God by faith in Christ. We are justified before God by faith in Christ. But our faith is justified, that is proven to be true by our works. As many of you know, I, I grew up in Missouri. I'm kind of a Southern belle. And, uh, and when, I, when, I, when Trish and I first moved up to the other side of the state, I was doing some substitute teaching. And I remember one night I was driving back to my house after substitute teaching and it was dark outside and I was driving over some, some lakes to get back to my house and going over bridges. And I remember going over this one bridge in my pickup truck. And as I was going over this bridge on my pickup truck, there was a truck driving underneath me on the ice below. And, and for someone who grew up in the South, this was 
This was mind-blowing. I almost thought I was having a hallucination because I'd never seen cars drive on ice before. I know it's probably normal to you. For me, it was absolutely crazy, okay? And so imagine if earlier in that day, I was sitting with this guy in a parking lot and we're by the lake and he says, you know what? I, I bet you that ice is strong enough that it can hold the truck. Uh, I'd be like, man, you are crazy, right? And he'd be like, no, I, I, I believe it could do that. I, I have faith that the ice is strong enough to hold me and the truck. And I'd say, okay, prove that to me. And if he started to him and he started to say, make excuses and like, well, you know, I got to get back to the home or whatever. I'd be like, you don't really believe. Like, like your faith in that ice isn't genuine. You say you believe it, but you don't really believe it. But if he hopped in the car and drove onto the ice and it held him, his faith would be justified. It would be proven to be true. His faith would be proven to be true and that the thickness of the ice would be proven to be true. You see, it was by that works that his faith was justified, that it was affirmed, that it was proven to be true. He already had the faith, but it confirmed the faith that he had. In the same way, James is using this word justified in a little bit different way than Paul is, I think to provoke us and to make us think. And he's doing it intentionally to startle us. In verse 22, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or matured by his works. And then, and then James seems to reverse it here to make sure we understand that, that we are saved by faith. Verse 23, he says, and the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And so there in verse 23, he makes it very clear. How was Abraham counted righteous before God? It was by faith. It was by believing in God. But his faith was justified. It was proven by his works. Now, as you hear the story of Abraham, you may think to yourself, well, that's great for patriarchs, right? Uh, but I'm no patriarch. Um, you know, I have a, I have a checkered history. Uh, Pastor Dan, if you even knew what I did this past week, you would see that my situation is pretty hopeless. But here's the good news that is in this passage. We see that saving faith is an active faith, not just for those of high morality, but for those of low morality. Saving faith is an act of faith, not just for patriarchs, but for prostitutes. Now, before you email me, that's what this version says, okay? This is what these verses say. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? If you're not familiar with the story of Rahab, Rahab was a woman living in Jericho in the midst of the promised land. And, and, and Israel sends two spies in to spy out Jericho before they come and overtake that, that city because it's part of the promised land. And when they go into the city, they lodge at Rahab's house in the lodge there. And, and so, so the, the king of, of Jericho hears about this and sends his men to go and to, to seize the spies in Rahab's house. And so they come to Rahab's house and Rahab says, hey, they, they escaped out the gate. You better go get them. But she's hiding the spies up on her roof. And so after she sends the guardsmen away, she goes to the men and she makes this amazing proclamation of faith. 
She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And then she says this. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Here is this prostitute with these men saying, I believe that the Lord, your Lord, is the God of all the universe. And so here we look back at verse 25. And it says, in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You know, we read verse 25 and we say, really, James, couldn't you have just called her Rahab? <laughs> Did you really have to mention what her occupation was? Did you have to mention that she was a woman of loose moral character? Was that really necessary? The reality is James could have chosen hundreds of people from the Old Testament to show that saving faith is an active faith. But James chose Rahab the prostitute. And do you know why? It says, so that you would know that the life-transforming, active, living, saving faith is not only for patriarchs, but also for pagan prostitutes. God wants you to know that it is never too late for you. You have never sinned too far. You are never so shamed that you cannot place saving faith in Jesus Christ and respond with active works of obedience. James ends this section with this small illustration. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit or from breath is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so he's basically saying this, listen, if you're driving down the road and you see a raccoon in the middle of the road and for some weird reason you get out of your car to go check it out and you notice that the raccoon is not breathing, you know the raccoon is dead because there is no longer breath in it. And so that body is useless. It is, it is just a rotting carcass. In the same way, if your faith does not have activity of, of sacrifice, of love, of mercy towards other, it is a useless faith that is powerless to save you. Let me end with this story. John Wesley was born uh, into a strong Anglican home. Uh, his father, Samuel, was a priest in the Anglican church. His mother, Susanna, taught religion and moral faithfulness to her 19 children. John Wesley attended Oxford and was a very good scholar. He knew all the right answers because he was raised in the faith. He was a part of something called the Holiness Club. I know, doesn't that sound fun? He was part of something called the Holiness Club, which his brother started up. And they took vows to lead holy lives. They took communion once a week. They prayed daily, visited prisoners. Uh, Wesley got up at 4 a.m. to pray for two hours before he would study his Bible. After college, Wesley was ordained in the Anglican church. And after six years of ministry, he sailed to America, to Georgia, to minister amongst the natives. His ministry was a colossal failure, but on the way there, uh, his ship encountered a horrific storm. And in the midst of that horrific storm, he feared for his life. But on the other side of the ship, he noticed some German Moravians who were also on their way 
to share the gospel with the natives in America. And they weren't afraid at all. As a matter of fact, in the midst of the storm, they were singing praises to God. And so when they got off of the ship, Wesley went to them and he asked them, how could they have such calm and peace in the midst of the storm? And they simply asked him a question. They said, do you have faith in Christ? And Wesley said, of course I do. I'm a, I'm a minister of the gospel, right? I'm an ordained priest. I'm going to, to, to lead a church. And yet when Wesley returned back to his home country of England, he concluded that he did not have saving faith in Christ. He actually said, I fear those words were vain words. But then on May 24, 1738, something amazing happened. And he journals about it. And so let me read to you from his journal. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly, I love it, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. At that moment, Wesley was transformed by the glory of the gospel. Not only was he doing religious duties begrudgingly, but he went on to establish orphanages and, and shelters for the poor and to, to care for those in need. You see, John Wesley throughout his childhood and his college years and even pastoral ministry had faith in Jesus. But it was not a saving faith. It was a dead faith. But then on May 24, 1738, his dead faith turned into a living and saving and active faith as his heart was warmed by the love of God in Christ. And so let me end just by asking you, if you look at James chapter two and take an honest assessment of your own life, do you have an inactive, dead, begrudging religious faith? Or is it active, saving, gospel transformation faith? You know, I wanna be careful because I don't want to make vulnerable Christians question their salvation, but James is challenging those with a false assurance of salvation. And he does it because he loves us, because he loves you, because he is calling you to repent of your dead faith and experience the joy of a living and active faith. And it does not happen by taping fruit to dead trees, but by trusting in a living Christ who died upon a tree for patriarchs and prostitutes and rose again to give them a living and active and saving faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we, are, uh, we come today, Lord, with, with somewhat contemplative and heavy hearts, God, as we consider our own salvation, Lord. God, I pray for those who, who are maybe uh, vulnerable in the faith, but do have saving faith that are overly critical of themselves in this moment, God. Pray you would reassure them of their saving faith, God. But Lord, I pray for those here who are proud in their faith, who believe that they have saving faith, but it is not legitimate. It is a false assurance of salvation, God. Lord, I pray that you would shake them out of their false assurance.
and help them to find assurance in you, Lord God, that they would trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation and the joy of your love would transform their life into a living faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name.